Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back to part two of our discussion of the songs of Beetle George. That brings us to two tracks that were ultimately rejected from the Sgt. Pepper sessions. That's why I was saying earlier a bit, a bit about jumping around, because George brought a lot of songs to the Sgt. Pepper sessions while ultimately having all of them rejected. <laughs> and mm. Within You Without You being kind of composed, made to order in that regard for that specific album but the first one we want to talk about here which made its way onto the yellow submarine soundtrack was it's all too much which is a favorite of mine via i me mine it's all too much was written in a childlike manner from realizations that appeared during and after some lsd experiences which were later confirmed in meditation as i look into your eyes your love is there for me the more i go inside the more there is to see. Yeah, there's this line, show me that I'm everywhere and get me home for tea, <laughs> which is kind of an acid trip kind of thing. You know, like you had your trip, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> right. Convenient insight in the form of LSD, in other words. Yeah. Which, uh, of course, makes me think of the Ruddles with uh, tea. <laughs> with tea. We experimenting with all different kinds of tea. English tea. It's All Too Much is a badass track. It's got that opening from Lennon to your mother. And that ringing guitar. And just really, it sounds dated in a way because it does have that psychedelia on it. But I don't know. What I think of this song is what I think about I Am the Walrus, which is it. it's very badass. Mm-hmm. There's a big driving bass to it all. It's a long song. There's different verses, too, that were either omitted or whatever, you know, from the final. But When you get to the end, the harmonies are really joyous. They're goofing around a little bit, and Paul kind of, I think, dominates the sound a little bit, but it's, it's really great at the end with the too much chanted vocals at the end. Lovely. Lovely. 
the world is birthday cake. So take a piece, but not too much. It's not a great line, but I kind of like the sentiment. You know, I noticed listening to the extra tracks on the Wonderwall music album that there's a song there called Almost Shankara. It's recorded with the Indian group, but it seems to be a bit of the tune from It's All Too Much. I don't know. I didn't see anyone mention that, but it's quite striking to me. I'll, I'll put them, I know we're going to get to Wonderwall soon, but I'll put the melodies next to each other here and you'll see what I mean. gravitate toward the uh, more like traditional rock and roll fair on that thing uh-huh. but the the opening track I mean we'll get to the microbes reminds me a lot of the inner light yes I mean there's a lot of that same kind of sound and stuff but anyway all it's all too much is a great closer for yellow submarine it's interesting that they there's so many George songs on the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, just proportionally. Yeah. And it's interesting that they just, I don't know, it's one of these things again where you understand the chip on his shoulder where they took his tracks and were like, (laughs) well, we have to fill up this movie. (laughs) And we told them we were going to have X amount of new songs. (laughs) So, George, guess what? Good news. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All your songs are going to be put there. Which brings us to Only an Northern Song, which I love and which was george's initial contribution to sergeant pepper but was Mm. deemed inferior for the ultimate record now sergeant pepper would take on a whole different kind of feeling had we swapped within you without you for only a northern song because only a northern song is sort of again in the tradition of don't bother me or one of these things where it's like it's grumpy a grumpy song yeah via i me mine only a northern song was a joke Relating to Liverpool, the holy city of the north of England. In addition, the song was copyrighted, Northern Songs Limited, which I didn't own. So, quote, it doesn't really matter what chords I play, as it's only a Northern song. So it's (laughs) him commenting on made-to-order tracks and basically saying, go fuck yourself, Dick James. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I think his grumpiness is, is justified this time. I mean, it's wonderful seeing McCartney and Lennon goof on Dick James in the, um, get back documentary too but yeah i mean that's a lot of it is george just saying yep this is only a northern song so here you go made to order here's your cheeseburger enjoy
think it would fit very well on Sgt. Pepper, or as you say, it would make Sgt. Pepper quite a different album. Even if you kept Within You Without You and swapped out some other song for this, it doesn't feel like the rest of Sgt. Pepper. It's not weird enough. Yeah. Sgt. Pepper's pretty weird. It has the atmosphere, I would say, but it mm. doesn't, like I agree, like it doesn't... It feels a little too much like straight rock in a way. Which is odd, because George was not doing that at yeah. this time. I mean, it wasn't where his head was. Yeah, the lyrics are sort of repetitive not literally repetitive but i mean it's the same notion kind of repeated over and over doesn't matter what i do i'm owned by this company it reminds me of baby you're rich man a little Hmm. yeah i can see that i think they're kind of sister songs in a way i think this would be great on magical mystery tour yes add this be perfect yeah like i don't know i i love the psychedelic beatles i would have loved an extended magical mystery tour you know but I don't know. Should we get into Wonderwall? Should we yeah. do the Wonderwall thing, Chris? Yeah, I, I'm eager to get into Wonderwall. You lead this one because I, I got to tell you, I, I took a listen through. I made a couple notes, but honestly, like this thing, I was expecting to love it. Mm-hmm. And what I wound up feeling about it was there was a lot of beautiful little bits but I didn't watch the movie like you did, and I, I feel like I'm going to do that tonight. But I don't know. T- tell me a little bit about your perceptions of Wonderwall. Yeah. So this is one that I, I think I heard it for the first time in the last 10 years. Yeah. So it's not one that I've known long. And I did think of it as a bit of Beatles ephemera or something, mm-hmm. you know, one of those oddball <laughs> things that you should own and spin once in a while, but you're not going to get invested in. Until listening to it as part of the review for this episode, and I, I found myself thinking, this should be held in higher esteem than it is. Now, the fact that it's attached to a pretty goofy movie <laughs> <laughs> doesn't help probably with its, <laughs> with its reputation, but it's actually kind of a compendium of a lot of what George Harrison was doing at the time. And I think his work there with the Indian musicians, this time not just in London with the Asian music circle, but also going to Bombay and doing recordings with musicians there. Yeah. He made some comment, I'm sorry, I can't remember where, that it was his favorite experience recording an album. He was asked later in his career, and he said it was his sort of just best experience overall. And I could kind of see that from the point of view of him being able to work with the musicians in India, being able to spend real time doing his thing. Remember, he's in the the whole get back thing is about to happen. He's frustrated. He's had about enough of, (laughs) you know, squeezing his work into the cracks between Lennon and McCartney. And so this is his chance to make a George Harrison album. And he took the opportunity to do a very eclectic, strange score for this movie. And it's remarkable, as I said, because it's, there's a lot of variety in the Indian music here. 
It's not exactly Indian music, it's George Harrison music, but you know what I mean? He's working with the Indian musicians and he makes music that has quite a few different moods. So it sort of works against the stereotype that it's all just Indian stuff. It's actually quite a few different textures and moods and feelings among the Indian instrument tracks here. Then there's the sort of rock stuff. Yeah. With, I guess, the Remo 4 playing on that with others, with, of course, some famous guest artists. I guess we can get to that. They're very short and most of them are, are slight, but it's the variety of them building up over the course of the listen that kind of impresses you. There's a track on there called Party Seacom that really sounds like flying. Yeah. 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 A lot like flying. I mean, it's pretty much quintessential psychedelic 1967 straight rock. Some beautiful acoustic accompaniment on that one. Yeah. So yeah, my impression as of right now is really quite good. My impression before was just foggy. It was just sort of I don't know. Yeah, I, I spin a fog it. Upon I'd LA. spin yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> there's a fog upon Wonderwall music. And <laughs> I would just spin the thing once in a while and think, all right, well, it's my, my record's in good shape. So there you go. It reminds me of a more put together Apple Jam or something, mm. you know. From but like, I think it's so much more than that. I really think it deserves a bit of attention. And I, I, I don't blame you for giving it a listen and thinking, huh. You know, no, no, I think it's, <laughs> no, I don't blame you because that was my impression for a long time. I just finally put it in context and listened to it and had quite a good experience with it. I think I need to sit with it for longer. You know, I'm, I'm not one of those people who writes off Apple Jam, by the way. I oh, mean, the, okay. I kind of talking about <laughs> you are okay. So I, I look at the third, I, in fact, it's funny of the three discs of All Things Must Pass, what I find is I put Apple Jam on more often than not. Oh, no of kidding. The three. Because it's nice, atmospheric music. Mm-hmm. And especially at like a party or if we have like relatives over or something. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I like to put on something that's kind of lyricless and kind of driving and interesting. And I find Apple Jam to be that. So when oh. I listen to Wonderwall music, that's what I hear. I see. Yeah. I hear that same kind of thing, albeit with more psychedelia attached. And you can also hear, I mean, I mentioned microbes before, but. The first thing I glommed onto was the fact that, oh, I think those are the same instruments from the inner light or, you know, that kind of thing. It's like you can, it's a... Yeah, inner light was recorded in those Bombay sessions. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a, a really interesting thing. The 2014 reissue has an alternate take of the instrument part of inner light. It's also kind of the first Beatles solo album in a way. I mean, if you don't count the family way. I don't count family way. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was... <laughs> I don't really listen to the family way for fun, but I might listen to this for fun because there's something kind of groovy and interesting about it. You know, I mean, the family way is very much a a beat for beat, like, Hey, this is a movie soundtrack, but George kind of made this into something more. And especially the rockier stuff. I really dig, you know, I really, it sounds good. It sounds like, you know, mid period cream or something, you know, and this is part of, of the time where George is, you mentioned trying to squeeze through the cracks of Lennon and McCartney. George is finding validation elsewhere. Yeah. He's finding validation with people from Cream, you know, Clapton, etc. He's finding validation from his heroes, Bob Dylan, the band, that kind of stuff. And he's learning to be his own person. And can you imagine taking, you know, doing this beautiful, wonderful soundtrack to this movie which eventually came out on Apple. So that was, you know, whatever, mid or to late 68. 
But when it was recorded, he was still Beetle George. You know, put yourself in that position. You're being validated by all I these. I believe it was the first Apple release, actually. Yeah, you, you may be right about that. Yeah. Put yourself in that position where you're being validated by all these people, all these extraordinary artists of the time. You know, um, who was it? Donovan called it like Olympus. They were all <laughs> at the time, you know, the people, the pop musicians at the time were like on Mount Olympus. They were Zeus, you know, the Beatles were Zeus, you know, whoever was, you know, there were all these gods making these seminal recordings that would reverberate through what we would imagine to be hundreds of years. And there's George, you know, trying to make his voice too. Well, and he's, yeah, he really leapt at this opportunity, apparently given a budget of 600, but (laughs) spent 15,000 of just his own money. Just like, I'm making this, you know. Which would foreshadow later what he did with handmade films and Life of Brian and all that. George is one to put his money where his mouth is. And he believes, you know, he's a believer, George. Well, I, I wonder how many of our listeners have seen the movie Wonderwall, probably quite a few of them. It's 50% of the hosts of this podcast have not seen it. So, I, <laughs> well, I, yeah, no shame in that. Uh, I, it's pretty goofy, but you know, it was kind of cooler than I thought it would be. It was visually, it's quite interesting and it's so 1967, 68. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, that's the look. And it's, it's about a peeping Tom though. Basically it's about an, <laughs> it's about an old professor who uh, gets uh, excited about the young libertines who live next no door. Chris Mercer autobiography, I see. <laughs> he's, got, he's got a hole in the wall, and he starts drilling more and more holes in the wall. That's the Wonder Wall? That's the Wonder Wall. And he's seeing all these magical things happening in the apartment next door where the young, you know, swinging 60s people live. Can I say something to you right now? Holy shit. <laughs> I did not realize that that was what that was about. Holy shit. That's what the Wonder Wall is. (laughs) It's a glory hole. It's a, well, something like that. And it's all, you know, it's not sold as he's a creepy peeping Tom. It's kind of sold as he has a cute fascination (laughs) with the the free love lifestyle, you know, with the Uh drugs and free love lifestyle. Naturally. And he ends up kind of saving the day at the end. She ends up kind of getting herself in trouble. And he ends up intervening and being a hero. So he's a peeping Tom hero. He gets rewarded. He's Marty McFly. (laughs) There's a lot to love about everything you just said. What I want to hear, I got to tell you. What I want to hear, Chris, is what are your standouts? If like a listener to Take It Away has not listened to Wonderwall soundtrack, is there anything you would say, okay, here's where you start. Here's a good place. Oh, yeah. So the opening track, Microbes, is really cool. I think you you mentioned that one, too. And let's see, crying is really interesting thing where he, there's a it's a bowed instrument. Whoever the musician is is manipulating it with the sandy to sound like weeping. That's really cool.
I know it's a goofy title, Greasy Legs, but it's a beautiful little track. You're avoiding all the rock stuff. Well, the rock stuff's all fun, but I think some of this Indian stuff is actually a, a bit more interesting. Skiing is a really fun one with Eric Clapton on guitar. So skiing, that's what I would say. Like if if somebody was saying, all right, I've never seen or heard this album before. What do I start with? I would say, okay, skiing sounds like a rock and roll song in the traditional sense. Like that's the one to listen to. It's got a nice hook. Burm. Whatever, you know, it's got a nice hook to it. The other one that we have to mention is Dream Scene, which is... A really, really a psychedelic, you know, freak out track. And I mean, I mean, freak out in the most technical sense of the word. (laughs) It's, it's the breakdown section of this album. Yeah. So it has a lot of experimentation in it. It's quite avant-garde. I would say it's not as aggressively avant-garde as Revolution 9. Yeah. But close in places. It's a longish track, five and a half minutes. mentioned revolution nine we know that was george and john yeah probably the last big come together of george and john until the solo years we know paul was out of town and felt bent out of shape that they had worked on that without him yeah you know that's another one where (laughs) paul felt bent out of shape when john had a new best friend (laughs) so i mean i i often wonder how much of george's you know lack of inclusion in the Lennon McCartney dynasty had to do with jealousy or had to do with, you know, petty shit like that, as opposed to quality. Because we hear in those later sort of, whatever, he's talking to Alan Klein. There's that chatter after Abbey Road came out that that um, has been circulating for a few years where Paul talks about, well, your songs haven't been that good <laughs> up until now. And now they're good. <laughs> You know, and they they talk about how they're going to divide up the Beatle albums moving forward. All right, well, I get three, John gets three, George gets three, Ringo (laughs) gets one, or whatever it is. Yeah. Part of me wonders, you know, was that purposeful, though? You know, up until that point, 
You know, was Paul trying to keep John for himself or was John trying to keep Paul to himself? Interpersonal dynamics like that are really interesting to think about because they're not logical. Right. They are human. They're emotional. And that's when you look at the breakup of the Beatles and go, how could these people who loved love so much split up? Well, it's because it's not logical. Because humanity isn't logical. We'll move on from Wonderwall here to talking about the latter half, which I call the 68-69, what are your roots, period. George told journalist Alan Smith at the time that he, quote, didn't care to dwell on mystical Beatle George anymore. Quote, it's all still within you and without you, but I don't want to get into that anymore because now I'm being a rock and roll star again. Yeah. Which is fucking awesome. <laughs> so I, I'm going to elaborate on that more as we go, but that gets into the idea of George play acting. So now he's understanding his place in the world. He's young as shit. He's whatever, 25. But he is understanding, okay, when Shakespeare said the world's a stage, that was probably true. And I am going to play the part that either I want to play or that what people expect me to play. The one last bit of psychedelia, mystical George, quote unquote, that we get is the inner light, which is the B-side to Lady Madonna. Via I Me Mine. The inner light came really from within you, without you. There was a David Frost show on television about meditation. Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was interviewed live along with John Lennon and myself. Amongst many others in the audience was Joan Mascaro, who is the Sanskrit teacher at Cambridge University. He wrote me a letter saying, quote, A few days ago, some friends gave me a recording of your song within you, without you. It is a moving song, and may it also move the souls of millions. And there is more to come, as you are only beginning on a great journey, end quote. He also sent me a copy of the book Lamps of Fire, and in his letter says, quote, might it not be interested to put in your music a few words of the Tao? For example, number 48, page 66 of the book. And that's where the words of the inner light came from. It's a translation from the Tao Te Ching. The instruments were all Indian, all played by Indian musicians, and all recorded at HMV Studios in Bombay. I think the song went unnoticed by most people because I was getting a bit, quote, out of it as far as Western popular music was concerned at that period. In the original poem, it says, without going out of your door, I can know the ways of heaven. And so to prevent the misinterpretations and also to make the song a bit longer, I did repeat that as a second verse and elaborate so that it included everybody. The song was written especially for Juan Mascaro because he sent me the book and is a sweet old man. It was nice. The words said everything. Amen. Now, the inner light, holy shit. As a B-side to Lady Madonna? Yeah. <laughs> good gravy. Now, <laughs> we know that the Beatles put down 
Lady Madonna as a way to have product available while they were on their sabbatical in Rishikesh. Right. But to put the inner light on the B-side and not Hey Bulldog? Well, Crazy. Well, maybe it's kind of cool, though, that they were going to India and... While we're there, <laughs> yeah. enjoy this Indian-influenced song, you know. <laughs> it's a beautiful song. The, the, it's a great song. That yeah. haunting instrument, I don't know what it's called, the Sarad, I think ah, it's yes. something like that. Beautiful, yeah. Is off-putting at first, but once you let it in, kind of helps you into the melody in some really, really beautiful ways. And the song itself is really lovely. The lyrics are gorgeous. And it's funny, in the Get Back sessions... You can hear McCartney talking about how much he likes the melody of the inner light. Yeah. And McCartney admiring a melody? High praise. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Without going out of my door I can know all things on earth Without looking out of my window I can know the ways of heaven Father one travels The less one knows The less one really Well, I think it's a fabulous song. It, this is one that I didn't come to until Past Masters came out. I guess 88 is when that came out. And didn't really pay much attention to. Again, probably it was grad school when I revisited the Beatles at some point, started listening through Past Masters again and noticed what an enchanting song it is. In terms of the lyrics, it seems to have the least of George in it. Even Within You, Without You has a lot of George's personality and earthly concerns, as it were. Whereas this seems to be completely just straight philosophy. Is it because he was plucking it from the book? Yeah. Maybe. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is. Musically, too, it seems quite divorced from a lot of George's other stuff. When I was reading the background of it, I was thinking about Brainwashed. Uh-huh. In that in Brainwash, there's that <laughs> great part of the song at, at the end where she says, How to Know God, page 130. <laughs> and I thought, oh, he's doing it again. <laughs> you know, even at the end of his life, he's quoting from books and his fucking songs, you know. He discovered something that was, he felt was beyond him. And he grasped onto it and he held on tightly. And I think John flirted with that stuff, but ultimately with Lennon, it tended to be more fleeting. Yeah. But with George, it was something he took very seriously. Well, it's remarkable to think that it's, it's all contained in just the three songs, really. Yeah. You know? And Wonderwall, of course. But. And Wonderwall. Chris, that brings us to the White Album, which he got... You know, his usual allotment of two songs per LP, in this case, four. While My Guitar Gently Weeps is a, I would call, masterpiece. 
There are three versions of this song, the first featuring George on acoustic guitar and Paul on harmonium, and that was recorded on July 25th, 1968. This is what people would know from Anthology, but was, interestingly enough, hidden a second version of it that Giles Martin uncovered when he was doing the 2018 remixes, and they put on that remix box... So there's two versions of that. Originally, this song was conceived as sort of a slow song with simply George on acoustic guitar and Paul on harmonium. But the band um, decided to take another crack at it in a slightly harder way following three grueling days on Not Guilty, which I'm going to not mention here and I'll save for our George Harrison album discussion. Yes. But on August 3rd, the band tried a heavier version of the song, of which George said, quote, I like how it suddenly turns into a song, end quote. <laughs> that one's got John on organ, Paul on bass, George on guitar, and Ringo on drums. Between this point and the next session on September 5th, Ringo had left the group and subsequently returned. During the September session, the song was transferred to 8-track, after having recently become available at Abbey Road Studios, or EMI at the time. I'm going to use Abbey Road and EMI interchangeably, so I apologize to any pedants out there. That version, which features a backwards guitar solo from George, was abandoned, and a third version sprung to life, this time involving Eric Clapton. That version features George on lead vocal and acoustic guitar, Paul on vocal, piano, bass and organ john on bass and ringo on drums and maracas with eric clapton on lead guitar which they added some special effects to later maybe chris you know how to uh, translate this for me but they put it through something called adt to quote wobble it up a bit do you know what that means chris yeah automated double tracking it basically means an early version of like flanging and chorusing so you just put two copies on two different tape machines of the same thing and let them play and touch the reels a little bit and they'll get out of sync a little bit and it'll sound kind of like double tracking. Huh. And that, I guess, would wobble things up a bit. Mm -hmm. It does indeed. <laughs> it, interestingly, this it was during the uh, While My Guitar Gently Weep session that Paul first introduced the song, Let It Be with the um, version that said Mother Malcolm comes to me as opposed to Mother Mary. Ah. Uh, Mother Malcolm being Mal Evans. And Paul saw a vision of Mal Evans while meditating in Rishikesh. And that was what he wrote Let It Be Around and then changed it later in PR terms to be about his mother because that made way more sense than Mother Malcolm. But you can hear him say Mother Malcolm Comes to Me in the um, 2018 White Album. Via I Me Mine, around the time of this track, I had a copy of the I Ching, the Chinese Book of Changes, which seemed to me to be based on the Eastern concept that everything is relative to everything else, as opposed to the Western view that things are merely coincidental. This idea was in my head when I visited my parents' house in the north of England. I decided to write a song based on the first thing I saw upon opening any book, as it would be relative to that moment at that time. I picked up a book at random, opened it, saw Gently Weeps, 
then laid the book down and started to write the song. Some of the words were changed by the time I finally recorded it. Quote, I look at the trouble and the hate that is raging while my guitar gently weeps, while I'm sitting here doing nothing but aging. Eric Clapton was the one to give George a cherry red Gibson Les Paul, which was the distinctive broad tone that changed Harrison's guitar sound significantly during this time. And the acoustic version of this song, initially cut on July 25th, 1968, featured George on guitar, Paul on harmonium, and was eventually released on Anthology in 1996. After that, it was chosen for inclusion in the Love Project of which Olivia Harrison asked George Martin to compose a new score for. Interestingly, this marks George Martin's last contribution to Beatle music. The last thing George did, 35 years after the band broke up, was orchestrate While My Guitar Gently Weeps acoustic version. Wow. Which is gorgeous. If I mean, Chris, look. You're editing this. Can we hear some of that, please? Yes. Still my guitar gently weeps. I don't know why nobody told you how to unfold your love. I don't know how someone controlled you. They bought and sold you. I look at when my wife saw the love play in Las Vegas, that was the segment that grabbed her. She was like, holy shit. You know, because this song transcends a lot of things, you know, but like it transcends genre because it can exist in a couple different genre spaces. But as an acoustic number, it works as an electric number. It works. I don't know. What are your impressions of all my guitar gently weeps? So it's another one that I warmed up to over the years. Really? Didn't grab you at first? It really didn't. Again, (laughs) I was... You know, focused on Blackbird and I Will and Julia and not so much on this, especially with all the soloing toward the end and stuff. For me as a kid, that just wasn't my thing. It's like, get get back to the songs, you know? So um, (laughs) yeah, this wasn't a favorite and it wasn't until later I came to appreciate it. By later, I mean within a few years. I just mean first time listening to the White Album, first few times, this wasn't my thing. Kind of like we were talking about with Within You, Without You. This is also, you know, this is a dark song in a lot of ways. It's a hopeful song, but it's a dark one. Musically, it's a bit dark as well, uh, with the descending minor chord progression. And a lot of it is about sadness and sort of unnecessary sadness. Seems to be a lot about how unnecessary so much of the suffering in the world is. I look from the wings at the play you are staging. Still my guitar gently weeps as I'm sitting here doing nothing but aging. <laughs> it's really beautiful and sarcastic and funny. And, and that's kind of where George comes down, you know? Yeah. It's kind of sarcastic and funny all the time. But it comes back to that play acting. What I said earlier, 
in that interview, I'm not interested in being mystical George anymore. Now I'm rock star George. Mm. You know, he's talking about, hey, <laughs> we're all playing the part that we've decided we want to play in the world. Well, and he's talking about the act of writing songs about, mm. in this case, the sadness and suffering in the world. It's, you know, meta in that sense that he's acknowledging himself as writing about it. When I was a kid and I heard this song, I didn't think of it as a badass track. I felt, I don't know, I felt like it was kind of stitched together. It had the sense to me of being something crafted as opposed to something that was organically created. And I think that may have just been the the idea that so many permutations of it had been tried up to this point. I think my favorite version of this song is that George acoustic Paul harmonium take, actually, where it's kind of simple, the melody is highlighted, and we get a good sense of like what George is trying to say. He feels very close mic'd in that sense. Mm-hmm. And the lyrics are important, I think, to this song. Still my guitar gently we I don't know how you were diverted, you were perverted too. I don't know how you were inverted, no one lived. George's second track on the White Album was Piggies. George said back in 68 that he had actually written this song several years prior, putting it roughly, I don't know, for sale, a rubber soulish era, but never finished it. When digging through some papers at home, he found the lyrics and the track was demoed during the Esher sessions. So it's interesting to me, too, that John and Paul were writing up a storm during Rishikesh, and George was actually paying attention, you know, and trying to learn how to <laughs> yeah. transcendentally meditate or whatever. Like, John and Paul were like, wow, this is cool. Let me go write a bunch of songs. So he was dusting off old ones and trying to give some new life to them during this time. But anyway, the basic track for the final was recorded on the 19th and 20th of September 68 and features George on lead vocal and acoustic guitar, John on harmony vocal, Paul on bass and harmony vocal, Ringo on tambourine and kick drum, and Chris Thomas on harpsichord. It was Chris Thomas's harpsichord that gave the song real life. George and Paul sing the harmonies while John sings the melody two octaves below them. This was cut when George Martin left the sessions, when he kind of sort of quit the group. And when George Martin came back, he elected to add strings to this track and to Glass Onion. Hmm. 
Those are real pigs grunting. There was a version of this where George tried grunting like a pig. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess they found some in the EMI archives and used those. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And for all the little piggies, life is getting worse. Always having dirt to play around in Have you seen the bigger piggies in the starched white shed? You will find the bigger piggies stirring up the dirt Always have clean sheds to play around in Via I Me Mind, piggies is a social comment I was stuck for one line in the middle until my mother came up with the lyric, what they need is a damn good whacking or a damn good throttling, which is a nice, simple way of saying they need a good hiding, as in hitting them on the butt. It needed a rhythm with backing and had absolutely nothing to do with American policemen or California shag nasties. There was an extra verse written but not used. Everywhere there's lots of piggies playing piggy pranks. You can see them on their trotters at their piggy banks, paying piggy thanks to the big brother. Hmm. (laughs) I fucking love piggies. I think it's awesome. I think it's unfortunate Charles Manson used it as an excuse to murder people, but I think it's a fucking great track and one of the highlights of the White Album. Yeah, me too. Me too. I I always loved it. It's such a great contrast at that point in the album, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, that precedes Rocky Raccoon, right? Yeah, it was like an unofficial animal theme to the White Album. That's a, a great little sequence on the album. So out there. And yes, the harpsichord is so crucial to the sound of this. And really the idea, like the harpsichord without him coming quite out and saying it gives you the notion of aristocrats, basically like pigs dressed up, (laughs) you know. With their starched uh, white shirts. That's right. Yeah. Acting as if they were civilized. (laughs) Chris Thomas, he goes uncredited, really. I mean, with a lot of this stuff. I mean, when Lennon stops showing up to George Sessions, Chris Thomas steps in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John, to his credit, does sing that low octave on this track. But it's Chris Thomas's harpsichord that does it. I guess he's a decent keyboardist. I mean, it's a legit harpsichord part. Yeah, my man was kind of a Beatle for a while. Yeah. Which brings us to Long, Long, Long which was recorded on October 7th, 8th, and 9th, 1968 in Studio 2 Abbey Road, which features George on lead vocals and acoustic guitar, Paul on backing vocal, organ and bass, Ringo on drums, and Chris Thomas on piano. Chris was instructed by the band to make the piano part sound like Go Now by the Moody Blues, Mm. introduced right at the end of the White Album sessions, the Threedles cut over 67 takes of this track, mm. ultimately choosing take 67. Paul can be heard pushing George not to settle for a take that he didn't like. George felt self-conscious that the sessions were going on far too long. Paul basically said, look, we'll stay here as long as we need to get it. I can see you. 
something called Joss sticks were something burned during the Rishikesh trip and were burned also during this session. Via I me mine, long, long, long is God. I can't recall that much about it except the chords, which I think were coming from Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowland, which is a Bob Dylan song. D to E major, A and D. Those three chords and the way they moved. There was a bottle of Blue Nun wine at the top of the Leslie speaker during the recording, and when our Paul hit some organ note, the Leslie started vibrating and the bottle rattling. You can hear it on the record so there's a bunch in there blue nun this is what millionaire rock stars are drinking blue nun <laughs> wine also he calls him our paul which as i as we know was his nickname in the mccartney household our kid mm. so he calls him our paul which is really sweet and yeah george cops to lifting the chord sequence from sad eyed lady of the lowland which if you hear the two songs back to back don't really sound the same they're not so similar in the end it's just the descending major scale thing what i love about this is that yeah denny lane <laughs> we get some wings foreshadowing in here with the go now thing and i i never really heard that until reading that in this um sessions book for the um white album I never really realized that it was based on go now but when you hear it it's like dun 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 well, I always thought this was a very creepy song. Again, this is one of the ones that with that thing at the end. Oh, oh. The, ghost, the ghost at the end. Yeah. yeah. I always thought this was a very ghostly track, actually. It is. Meditative in a sad way. I, I mean, it, it has a sad quality. The lyrics aren't particularly sad, I guess. They're meditative, but it always seemed like a both creepy and sad song <laughs> to me. Yeah. I, I never paid it any notice until the 2018 remaster when his vocal is brought up in the mix and you can hear more of the rhythm section. I think it was a mixing problem for me, but when you hear this in the context of the White Album, there's so much to absorb. Why would you absorb this? It seems like such a, a whisper compared to everything else, you know? Some really cool drumming on this one. Oh, uh, Ringo It's a great sound here. Yeah. And those, you know, cool little fills yeah absolutely on fire ringo's a highlight but what was great to me about this is that paul was like no don't settle man if you like this track let's do it you know he's helping baby brother george when john isn't even there there's a period toward the end of the beatles where john just stops showing up for george stuff yeah which brings us to savoy truffle George told a British paper that he desired to write songs without any meaning because he was fed up with people asking him what all the songs meant. That quote was a week before the Savoy Truffle session took place. This was recorded on October 3rd and 5th, 1968 at Trident. And again on October 11th at Studio 2 Abbey Road, where the lead guitar part 
and piano was laid down. It features George on lead guitar and vocal, Paul on backing vocal and bass, Ringo on drums and tambourine, and Chris Thomas again on electric piano. Mm -hmm. There was also four tenor saxophones, uh, which Chris Thomas wrote the arrangement for and recorded at George's request at max level with heavy compression. They're going for the good morning sound on yeah, that. The, yeah, the boom, boom, big, bright, bouncy number. Via I Me Mine, a dummy one while written with Eric Clapton whilst hanging out in the 60s. At the time, he, he had a lot of cavities in his teeth and needed a lot of dental work. He had always had toothache, but he ate a lot of chocolates. He couldn't <laughs> resist them. And once he saw a box, he had to eat them all. He was over at my house, and I had a box of good news assortments, chocolates, on the table. And I wrote the song from the names on the lid. I got stuck with the two bridges in the middle for a while, and Derek Taylor wrote some of the words in the middle. You know that what you eat, you are. This came from Derek Taylor. (laughs) A forerunner of George's electric piano baritone saxophone sound that was used in many later solo recordings. And I got to say, a big highlight for me on the White Album, I love this track. It's a big, badass rock and roll song. Yeah, it's a great song. Lyrically, there's not much going on there. I mean, it's, how would you say, it's very adroit (laughs) with the use of all the different candy names, right? So it's got some technical charm in the lyrics, but it's not a about much i guess it, it's i guess it's about decadence more generally though isn't it yeah it's kind of uh mr kite-ish in that way it's a bit of a gross thought though that <laughs> eric clapton's teeth were rotting out and he was eating chocolate <laughs> all the time <laughs> god <laughs> which is funny because he's not like a fat guy or something yeah. he's just <laughs> he just loves to eat candy to the point where his teeth fall out yeah jeez <laughs> It's a good rocker. It's one of his handful with the Beatles of like straight rock songs, you know? He does more of that, as I guess you're noting in general as we go through here, but he does more of that going forward, going back to his rock roots. And it goes with the play acting thing. Yeah. When I read that quote, I was like, oh yeah, I get that. You know, he's he's recognizing that his life and the life of his contemporaries are basically play acting and he's in this period now or that period then and... I think it was Ravi Shankar that encouraged George to go back to his roots and his roots are rock and roll. So he made some rock and roll songs, you know, which brings us to a track called badge, which George co-wrote with Eric Clapton for the final album from cream, which I think is called goodbye via I me mine co-written with Eric Clapton. The group cream had all decided they were going to make one last album together and they all had to turn up on some day with a new song. Each Eric had some of the melody and I helped him finish the tune. And then he wrote some of the words when written, The words we got to the middle part, which I called the bridge, I put down on the paper the word bridge. Eric was sitting opposite me, and he looked at the paper upside down to him and cracked up, saying, what's that, badge? And I said, it's bridge. So later, Eric called the song badge. (laughs) It's funny. Now he actually sings in concert at the end of the song, where's my badge? Later, and this is the best part for me, later, Ringo came in. He was absolutely plastered. 
and we were up to the lines i told you not to drive around in the dark and ringo said and the swans live in the park it's a bit silly but that's how it happened folks (laughs) the song badge that george originated for cream's farewell record was the first of george's tracks to feature his signature rolling guitar lick an arpeggiated chord sequence D C G D, which would become iconic and used to great effect on songs like Here Comes the Sun and You Never Give Me Your Money. And it winds up becoming the thing that unites much of the B-side for Abbey Road. The picking heard on these tracks would come up later in George's solo work, specifically the Dark Horse album and period. Now, I don't know how familiar you were with Badge. I love this song. As Cream songs go, it's one of my favorites. thinking about this badge here because i like i like this song a lot like i went through a cream thing in high school but not that much like they're not a group that sticks with me a lot but this song always struck me as a highlight so i'm curious to hear your take yeah my friends were into cream in high school but i never was so i actually never had heard this song and i just listened to it a little bit a few times in preparation for this and it's not the most george harrison sounding song in the world uh i mean except for the the little part at the bridge with the the guitar, with the Leslie Speaker right. guitar, that sounds yeah. suddenly quite George Harrison. But the rest of it sounds, I don't know, there's not a single augmented or diminished chord in there anywhere. How can it be a George Harrison song, you know? <laughs> um, no, I think it's pretty cool, and it's it's a nice record. It's actually a really beautiful little record. Yeah. Great guitars all around, as one would expect. I mean, you mentioned that bridge there. I mean, that's where that sound comes from um in fact on the handwritten lyrics for here comes the sun he even writes son of badge right uh, on that because it's all that's kind of where he came up with that arpeggiated dcgb thing Uh dcgd thing and it kind of became iconic and so it's it's just interesting little footnote that (laughs) this random song off of cream's goodbye album has such a rich impact on not just Beatle history, but sort of pop music history, because it's something that's often imitated. Yeah, it's always interesting to think about the fact that, you know, you can probably grab a plug-in now that'll emulate that sound, but they had to, like, hack a Leslie organ speaker <laughs> to, to get that yeah. little bit of um, chorusy quality that it has. I like Batch. Uh, I think it's great. They talk about it a lot and get back to, I mean, there's, there's a joke where they're talking about giving out free badges for badge and get back and stuff like that. So <laughs> it's, it's uh it's just a fun little footnote, you know, happening in the background of all this other stuff. Anyway, that brings us to I Me Mine. And I Me Mine's an interesting tune because as many know, the only reason it's even a song is because John and Yoko decided to waltz to George's 
little sketch of it in the Let It Be film. Right. And because that made it to the final cut of the film, the Threedles had to compose it from pretty much whole cloth a year later in January 1970. So this was actually so the song. Nothing was officially put down during the Get Back Sessions, but this was recorded 3rd of January 1970 at Studio 2 Abbey Road by the Threedles. George on lead guitar, harmony vocal, acoustic and electric. Paul on harmony vocal, organ, bass and acoustic and electric piano and Ringo on drums. There's also an overdub on April 1st 1970 at EMI, which is Phil Spector just pouring violins and violas and cellos onto it for some godforsaken reason, but did not need it. Yeah, I had an interesting experience because for the Let It Be songs, you know, I pulled up both the Let It Be version and the Let It Be Naked version. Yeah, I suppose I could do without the orchestra on this. I don't know what it adds, yeah. you know? I like the fact that there's genuine... Beatle music being recorded in the year 1970. There's something kind of fun about that. It feels too late. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. It can't be. <laughs> right. There's photos of Paul, Linda, George looking on his way to the All Things Must Pass look. Ringo, of course. And George Martin is there. Yeah. You know, and it looks very, very normal. And much like every, or almost every other George session, John is not there. <laughs> um, which is something that was becoming increasingly... A thing. Of course, he did present the song during the Get Back sessions, as we saw in the movie, the recent movie. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most moving moments in the movie for me, I think. He just wrote it last night, you know, and it's such a yes. beautiful little thing that he's written. Uh, I'm not sure that the other Beatles fully gave it its due. Do I remember correctly that they kind of yeah. shrugged it off? I, I watched that sequence again last night, actually, in preparation for this, just to kind of get a better angle on it. And it's interesting because it's in the Twickenham part of the recording, so <laughs> the doldrums. Everybody's in a bad way, yeah. But George is actually looking kind of positive and excited to share the song. In fact, he turns to Paul with kind of like a smile and big eyes. Hey, you want to hear the one I wrote last night? And... They say, okay, you know, and then they, they play it out, but John sort of shrugs it off. And then the sequence kind of putters out with John not even wanting to participate in it, but going off and doing this waltz. And then it turns into a joke about the waltz before they go back to two of us, mm -hmm. you know, and they just kind of leave it there. Yeah. And you can see, like, of course, George would have been building to a walkout at that point. Of course. Yeah. I mean, after just, after finally, you know, trying to, rally and say, okay, I actually wrote something I like, and I'm going to give this a go. And then to have it squashed again, and then to have Paul dictate his parts to him. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a Paul defender through and through, but you can see why George was frustrated. Maybe that plays into the fact that George didn't really finish the song, it seems to me. No. It strikes me as an unfinished song. It's just got that I, me, me, mine part as kind of a chorus filler. Right. And so it's like he's written this beautiful fragment of a song. And I mean, the contrast between the, the verse and the I, me, me, mine part is it's so silly because the verse is so serious and so moving. Right. And then it just turns into a jam for a while, you know. And I think Paul added that or that was his idea that there was a, originally a, what do you call it? Flamen flamenco? Flamenco guitar? Am I pronouncing that yeah. right? That little dun 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 Oh yeah, dun, that's dun, flamenco dun, dun. guitar, yeah. Yeah, so that was the original thing. And actually that survived on one take from the 1970 session before they kind of ditched it. And then Paul just sort of suggested a boogie. Yeah. But 
What's funny about that is, as I mentioned, John wasn't there. And in George Martin's handwritten notes from that session on that day, you can see without explanation a little map of Europe, which one assumes is George Martin pointing out to the Threedles where Denmark is on a map because John was in Denmark at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. And there's a great opening bit of talk from that session that where George says, you will have all read that Dave D is no longer with us, but Mickey Titch and I would just like to carry on the good work that's always gone down in number two, (laughs) which is to say, you know, Lennon ostensibly had quit the Beatles back in whatever it was, September at that point. So no one, I mean, it wasn't official, but it was pretty official. And the fact that he wasn't showing up was kind of reinforcing that he did, in fact, quit. And so George is making reference to that here, which, again, backs up Paul's whole thing. It was like, I didn't split up the Beatles. Lennon left. Yeah. (laughs) You know, what was I supposed to do? (laughs) But uh, anyway, back to the song, I Me Mine is the ego problem. This is George's quote. There are two eyes when people say, I am this, and the big eye is meaning ohm the complete whole universal consciousness, which is a void of duality and ego. There is nothing that isn't part of the complete whole. When the little eye merges into the big eye, then you are really smiling. So there is a little ego, the little eye, which is like a drop in the ocean. And then he goes on talking about quotes from Swami Vivekananda, And I don't know if I need to read all of that, but that's the genesis of it is basically saying, you know, everybody's problems are so small. They're so frivolous compared to the universe. The frivolous, selfish problem is always warring with the idea that, you know, life flows on within you and without you sort of thing. (laughs) So it's it's a big idea, like you're saying, it's this beautiful sort of profound kind of poem That doesn't fit that boogie in the middle, but I don't know. The more I listen to it, especially the 21 remaster, the more I appreciate the song. As a kid, I kind of wrote it off, but I really, really have grown to love this track. Yeah, I love it for what it is. I just wish there were more to it. Yeah. Instead of that I, me, me, mine part, I wish there were a proper chorus that goes with that beautiful verse. And you know, if this was 1966, there might have been. But Mm. at this point, they were lucky that... Dozy showed up, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> through the day, I'm in mine, I'm in mine, I'm in mine. All through the night, I'm in mine, I'm in mine, I'm in mine. Now the frightened are leaving it, everyone's weaving it, coming on strong all the time. All through the Speaking of not a lot to it, that brings us to For You Blue. Now, I would imagine, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and guess that you don't care for this song. I love it. <laughs> it hey, it's a hot little record. It's a sweet yeah. record. But yeah, there's not much to the song. The lyrics are fluff. And musically, it's just a blues. But what a record. Yeah, George said of this one, a simple 12-bar song following all the normal 12-bar principles, except it's happy-go-lucky. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Lovely girl, I love you. 
Cause you're sweet and lovely girl It's true I love you songs on let it be this might be up there with my favorites because like you said it's really a, a slick nice pleasant clean sounding tune yeah and yeah. it does sound really upbeat it makes me feel good when i hear it I, I never skip this one if it comes up on a shuffle or something i always leave it on because it just makes me physically feel good mm-hmm. <laughs> yo they're in a great groove on this for sure yeah, so it was cut on the 25th of January, 69, so it was in Apple Studio. But here's something I never knew, which apparently is true. The vocal was cut in that January 1970s session. Yeah, January 8th. At Olympic. Yeah. All the little ad-libbing, the Elroy James got nothing on this baby, <laughs> where he's laughing and stuff. John's not actually in the room when he says, go, Johnny, go. Yeah, that's... Because it, it's a Threedles thing. Strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that I found really interesting. I didn't know that. And then the other interesting thing about this I also didn't know is that that tack piano sound that Paul gets on this one was created by inserting little bits of paper between the hammer and the strings at the top section of the keyboard on his piano because they didn't want it to sound like a, you know, a grand piano. They wanted it to sound a little honky tonk, you know. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you actually insert tacks into the hammers. I think that's where tack piano comes from. But this would be a softer version. You know that really brittle piano sound on Saturday in the park? <laughs> that I'm pretty sure that's tack piano. Just really sharp metallic attack on the strings. Yeah. That song was playing when my daughter was born. Oh, true story. No kidding. It's a great song. And speaking of great songs, I'm ready to talk about Old Brown Shoe. Old Brown Shoe. One of my favorite George songs, up there with my favorite Beatles songs. There's really? a great version of it. Yeah. There's a great version of it covered uh, by Conan O'Brien, of all people, who does it real justice. And that was the first time I understood what the lyric actually was when George says, For your sweet top lip, I'm in the queue. <laughs> <laughs> what a line. <laughs> well, that's a great line. It's sort of a tongue twister. Yeah, it's an unexpected tongue twister because who's talking about top lips? It seems a little strange. So this was originally demoed um, February 25th, 1969 at EMI. So I think it was probably introduced during Get Back because Paul, when he's reading through the run order of the songs that they've got toward the end when they're in Apple Studio, he mentions a song called I Want a Love That's Right, which I think is this, because that's the first line of uh, Old Brown Shoe. So it must have been introduced at the very least. Uh, but what's really interesting about this one is that 
It's the B-side of The Ballad of John and Yoko. And for the A-side and the B-side, Ringo was still off shooting the Magic Christian. So it's Paul playing drums on both the A and the B, which I think is the only Beatles single in their entire catalog where Paul plays drums on both sides of the single. I didn't know that. I didn't know he played on Old Brown Shoe. Wow. Recorded two days after John and Paul did Ballad of John and Yoko, which is just really, really interesting. And I I don't know, I love this song. It does have John on it, Mm -hmm. although technically it's a Threedles song because um, John's piano was wiped (laughs) by George. Ah, I see. So there is a version with him playing on it. Well, you know, I got to know this one originally on the album Hey Jude. Yeah, that's right. Right. (laughs) The album Hey Jude. (laughs) And of all those American uh, mix-em-up albums... This has got to be the silliest one. Can't Buy Me Love, I Should Have Known Better. <laughs> Lady Madonna, Revolution, Hey Jude. <laughs> Rain is on there. It's such a ridiculous <laughs> It's just like, what, if, what haven't we put out on an actual LP yet? And yet, you know, I had that one as a kid because you did what you could. And you had to get Hey Jude. You know, you had to own the album that Hey Jude is on. So I did have that. And I think I was probably so exhausted at the end of Hey Jude that when Old Brown Shoe came, I was kind of out of it. <laughs> I think I always <laughs> overlooked it a little bit. <laughs> I think you're not alone. I think a lot of people overlooked this one. And I had read that it was really only given life or new life on the Blue album, on the Red and the Blue. Ah, that's right. Yeah. It was included on that in 73. So I think it was sort of immortalized there. We thank God for those red and blue albums, by the way, because before the CDs came out, there were a lot of songs that you mainly could get there, at least in good quality. I mean, it helped sustain Beatles fandom in the 70s. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of songs that I heard for the first time on on those two albums, just weren't available on the other American Beatles albums. Got some strange lyrics in this one. I want a short-haired girl who sometimes wears it twice as long. <laughs> I think I know what he's saying. I think I know what he's saying. <laughs> well, yeah. He's, uh, so from I Me Mine, he, George says, I started the chord sequences on the piano, which I really don't play, and then began writing ideas for words from various opposites. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the duality of things. Yes, no, up, down, left, right, right, wrong. So wow. every line is just an opposite. Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, you know, he's getting these ideas from Eastern thought, but they show up as these funky blues songs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, That's I wouldn't right. hear this song and think for a second that it had anything to do with, you know, the duality of, of life or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Got me escaping from this zoo, you know? <laughs> yes, it's, it's a weird line now that I think about it. I love, uh, I want a love of yours to miss that love is something I'd hate. It's mm. a great line. Yeah, that brings us to the Abbey Road tracks. I mean, what can be said that hasn't already been said about something? Mm. So George said of this one, written on the piano while we were making the White Album, I had a break while Paul was overdubbing, so I went into an empty studio and began to write. That's really all there is to it. Except the middle took some time to sort out. It didn't go on the White Album because we'd already finished all the tracks. I gave it to Joe Cocker a year before I did it. It's probably got a range of five notes, which fits most singers' needs best. (laughs) This is supposedly my most successful song with over 150 cover versions of it. My favorite is the one by James Brown. That was excellent. Hmm. When I wrote it in my mind, I heard Ray Charles singing it, and he did it some years later. I like Smokey Robinson's version, too. We know George is a big Smokey fan. 
In fact, he wrote a song about Smokey called Pure Smokey, which we'll get to on 33 and a third. It's a beautiful track. In Get Back, you get to hear them help George write the middle bit. Mm -hmm. The famous Attracts Me Like a Pomegranate was the (laughs) stand-in. What's to say about something? It's Don't judge us uh, listeners for not saying much. We just figure (laughs) this is one that lots of these songs have been talked about a lot, but this one in particular. uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I remember loving it when I first heard Abbey Road. You know, like everybody else, I guess. I mean, I was mostly focused on John and Paul songs and saw the George songs, you know, as cool little um, side trips, you know, along the way. But these two songs on Abbey Road seem really integrated into the album. I love a lot about what this meant for George's career. I love that it helped prop him up as a writer. It helped put him on a similar stage as John and Paul for the first time. There's that famous Beatles meeting where they're talking about how they're going to carve up the future records after Abbey Road. And, you know, George gets equal time with John and Paul. And it was, you know, you hear Paul say something to the effect of, well, your songs up to this point haven't really been that good. (laughs) (laughs) You hear George say, well, I don't know. I think people kind of liked them. Something's like, fuck you, Paul. God's sake.
speaking of connecting to songs, most people can connect with Here Comes the Sun. Uh, this was recorded throughout the months of July and August 1970, begun on July 7th and ultimately wrapped on July 19th. It's another Threedles track. George on lead vocal, guitars, Moog synth, harmony vocals and hand claps, Paul on bass, harmony vocals and hand claps, and Ringo on drums and hand claps. George Martin's instrumentation included violas, cellos, double bass, clarinets, alto flute, flute, and piccolo. And uh, George said of this one, this was written at the time when Apple was getting like school, where we had to go to be businessmen, all this signing accounts and sign this and sign that. Anyway, it seems as if winter in England goes on forever. By the time spring comes, you really deserve it. So one day I decided I'm going to sag off Apple and I went over to Eric's house, Eric Clapton. I was walking in his garden. The relief of not having to go to Apple and see all of those dopey accountants was wonderful. And I was walking around the garden with one of Eric's acoustic guitars and wrote this song. Yeah. And then he wound up finishing it on holiday in, in Sardinia. George plays D with a capo on the seventh fret as he had done on the song If I Needed Someone, which I thought was interesting. And George said of this one, the basic riff was a bit like all those bells of rhymney birds type things. That's how I see it anyway. It's quite vintage. The ending bit is in seven and a half time, echoing an Indian rhythm called Tihai, T-I-H-A-I. Okay. I don't know how you Tihai sounds good to me. The Moog on this was George's, Mm -hmm. and he was on the forefront of all that. He couldn't wait to get his hands on one as soon as it was invented. And so actually the one that you hear on Abbey Road, which is tasteful, by the way, I like a tasteful synth, is George's personal one. Yeah. Which you get periodically in George's music in the Beatles. Like It's more often than not his equipment that they're using. Well, in Get Back, they dragged in his tape machine, right? That's right. It's like, guys, that's $10,000, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I think the Moog system he bought was $8,000. He bought it from Bernie Krause. We're going to get back to that, which is an unfortunate story. But yeah, so he's got this Moog that he bought from Bernie Krause and that was used also on electronic sound. Well, why don't we talk about electronic sound? Because that one is primarily just Moog experimentation, right? Well, it's an unfortunate story with that album. So Bernie Krause is quite well regarded in the electronic music world. I think he's especially well known. When I teach about him in my classes, I talk about his field recording work. Bernie Krause is one of the people who brought field recording, basically audiography, up to the artistic standards of you know artistic photography, like creative photography, mm. where you know the equipment so well. And the things you're recording are so extraordinary that it's its own art form. And so I know Bernie Krause from his amazing rainforest recordings and seashore recordings and just these beautiful field recordings in faraway locations, you know. So he was a salesman for the Moog company at the time that George Harrison was interested in this stuff. And he went to give George Harrison a demo of the Moog. And he was showing him all these things that he was planning to use on his next album. Hmm. Unbeknownst to him, the entire session was recorded. And George Harrison used it, basically edited it, chopped it up, did a little extra stuff to it, and used it as side two of electronic sound. Wow. Yeah. Not cool. 
So Bernie Krause was infuriated by this. His name apparently had originally been on the cover. And I don't quite understand his reasoning here. Wouldn't you want your name on the cover of a George Harrison album? And even if you lost some material in the process, at least you're going to get credited. But he had his name taken off. If I'm getting this right, he had his name taken off the cover, and you can apparently see his name underneath, like painted over there on the cover. Wow. He was infuriated by this. It really it really messed with him. So it's side two of Electronic Sound, the track called No Time or Space, the longer track of the two. And definitely George did stuff to it. He didn't just straight up steal it, but he did surreptitiously record a demo with a bunch of apparently proprietary material and release it as his own, <laughs> you know. So not cool. By the time he made side one, he had his own Moog. But Bernie Krause was so pissed that even though he did go to George Harrison's place to set up the Moog and instruct him, he just gave him the bare minimum instruction. So he refused to like really work with him. Wow. Just like, I set it up for you. Here's how it works. Bye. (laughs) You know? So Harrison didn't get a huge amount of instruction on the instrument. I think the album's pretty lackluster. Just as a work of electronic music, it's lackluster. It's interesting because... A lot of people will hate this album just because it's electronic music or because it's experimental music. Like, that's enough. So for some of the critics who bashed it at the time, (laughs) like that's all it takes for them to hate it, right? But in fact, in the world of, of experimental music, just like rock and roll, jazz, soul, anything else, there's good stuff and bad stuff and middle of the road stuff. And so this is kind of middle of the road. And on the one hand, it's great that Things like Revolution 9 and Electronic Sound probably brought this kind of experimental music into a lot of homes that wouldn't otherwise have had it. But how bad of an impression did it make? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, Well, I mean, Revolution 9, I think, is on a different level than this. How so? I mean, it's, it's the tape music equivalent of this kind of synthesizer work. I guess, but there's a real structure and I don't know, there's, there seems to be a lot of thought. You're right. I mean, it's less of an improvisation. It's more of a composition. And this feels more like a kind of an improv, kind of like a jam. You know? Right, which George worked with John on. So, I mean, it's interesting. He didn't really dabble in this kind of thing too much more often. I think what I'm saying, though, Paul, is that Revolution 9 is to real tape music. Yes. As electronic sound is to real synthesizer music. Gotcha. So, I mean, if you want to compare this to Morton Sabotnik, who worked with the Buchla, now that's real synthesizer music. That's someone who really knows what the hell they're doing. And the obvious comparison to make here would be to Wendy Carlos, Walter Carlos at the time, who was the number one practitioner on the Moog and who was working with Bob Moog to like actually advance the instrument. She would actually ask for things and he would make them, you know, (laughs) and her work is so sophisticated. I mean, musically, it's mostly transcription work, although she did do her own compositions, but like Clockwork Orange, for example, all the electronic music in a Clockwork Orange is Wendy Carlos. And she did compose some original music that barely got used in the movie. Most of what you hear in the movie is her transcriptions. Hmm. But like that work is so sophisticated, so like labor intensive. There's really no comparison in terms of just knowledge of the instrument and the use of the instrument. So I think this is lackluster and it's kind of neat that he did it, but... I think it's nothing to write home about. Nothing to get hung about is what I would say. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I I don't have the ear for it. 
to be honest. I mean, I think of this album much like I think of, you know, like Life with the Lions or something where I just am sort of fascinated as a footnote sort of thing that it exists or like that first Fireman record or, sure. or the second one before they're actually songs. Speaking of which, this and Life with the Lions were the first two Zapple releases, right. which was their yes. super ultra experimental sub-label of Apple. So the, the Beatles themselves have have a history of, on occasion, making faux pas like the one you describe with Bernie. And it's funny you bring up A Clockwork Orange because the B-roll from Dr. Strangelove of clouds and atmosphere and things was liberated, let's call it, by Dennis O'Dell from the Beatles camp for use in the sequence flying in Magical Mystery Tour without Stanley Kubrick's knowledge. And in A Clockwork Orange, there is a reference there. I think we see a Magical Mystery Tour promotional standee, I think, in A Clockwork Orange. as, And that was Kubrick's nod to, hey, you did this without my permission. I see you. <laughs> yeah, but where, I mean, Kubrick stole Ligeti's music. He used Ligeti's music in 2001 without Ligeti's permission. I, I, I'm not, I'm not versed in Kubrick. <laughs> like, I'm simply saying, <laughs> of course, that I'm, was later, but <laughs> I'm simply saying there is a history of this sort of like, yeah, I would think of it more as a faux pas. I don't know if I think of it as like, I think I maybe feel differently, differently if I were Bernie. The other thing too is like John Lennon famously did this to Frank Zappa. <laughs> on sometime in New York City where there's a live jam that was an actual song that Zappa wrote called King Kong. Oh, God. And Lennon took it from the live recording, didn't tell Zappa he was doing it, called it Jam Rag, and put it on the back of the live portion of the Sometime in New York City album in 72 and gave himself sole publishing credit. I don't know what to say about any of this, really. I'm... I'm appalled by the Bernie Krause thing, but I also think, and you know, you can't get into someone's head, but like I said a few minutes ago, isn't this your chance to like get yourself out there? Yeah. yeah. George Harrison used your work on his album. A lot of people are going to check that out. Well, not that many people. It didn't sell so well, but more than would listen to a Bernie Krause album. So naturally. Yeah. yeah. I have very little to say about electronic sound. So I think that is literally hey, the most I've for, talked man. about. <laughs> But I, just before we wrap here, I'll just touch on a couple other things. And the only reason I bring these up is because they do point to the – they're an early clue to the new direction, I guess you could say. But uh, Jackie Lomax's Sour Milk Sea is another song of note. This was written in Rishikesh along with another track, which I think we'll talk about next time called Daradun. But anyway, Sour Milk Sea via I Me Mine. George says, I never actually recorded the song. A lot was based on Vishivasara Tantra from Tantric Art. What is here is elsewhere. What is not here is nowhere. It's a picture, and the picture is called Sour Milk Sea. Kaladadi Samundra in Sanskrit. The origin and growth of Jambutiva. 
The central continent surrounded by fish symbols, according to the geological theory of the evolution of organic life on Earth. The appearance of fishes marks the second stage. I used sour milk seas as the idea of, if you're in the shit, don't go around moaning about it, (laughs) do something about it. (laughs) Again, a much deeper explanation than I would expect from the song, but... I mean, there are deep lyrics in it, and there's an Esher demo of it, of George singing it. And so we do actually have an official Beatle release, and I'm so happy they cleaned up those Esher demos for the White Album repackage, because I have heard those literally my whole life, but dreaded them because the sync on the double track is off mm. on the bootlegs. So you hear this weird echo to the point where it starts to give you a migraine. <laughs> but <laughs> Giles Martin took the thing and actually cleaned it up brought it into, you know, with modern recording sensibilities and synced it. So it's actually listenable now. Mm -hmm. So the Sour Milk Sea from that is quite listenable. But anyway, he gave that song to Jackie Lomax, who's an Apple artist and happened to be one of the Beatles' early sort of cohorts in their Liverpool days. And they were trying to build Jackie up as one of the big Apple artists alongside Mary Hopkin and Badfinger. And Jackie just never quite took off for whatever reason. It's it's hard to say because Sour Milk Sea is basically a Beatle recording mm-hmm. with Jackie singing. Mm-hmm. And it's a damn fine song, I think. Sour Milk Sea is a wonderful song. Now, it could be any number of reasons why it didn't work. Maybe the, the title alone, Sour Milk, turned people off. Like, it's very possible that could have happened. Hmm. Maybe it's Jackie's voice. I don't know what it was, but it just never worked. But I bring Sarah Milk C up to say like, hey, this is George really starting to step into a producer role and really get comfortable in that space. Yeah. And he wound up really enjoying it. And as we'll discover more in this series, that's something he continues well into the 70s, like far into the 70s. You know, he loves technology, clearly. And he loves the idea of shaping sounds. If your life's not right, doesn't satisfy you. So the other two I want to bring up are the Apple album by Doris Troy, 
which uh, producer George worked on the standard Oh Happy Day with the iconic soul singer, which featured chanting and was an early precursor to My Sweet Lord. And it's funny, when you get to the 70s when George is sued for My Sweet Lord. Speaking of Beatles stealing things. (laughs) Right, but he brings this up in court. He says, no, 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 My Sweet Lord is Oh Happy Day. It's not this He's So Fine song. Yeah. And... I don't know. There's a lot of layers. We'll get to all that. (laughs) Right. But anyway, I I bring up the Doris Troy thing because that did inspire him to say, okay, maybe I should be more direct about my, you know, singing and enjoyment of religion. And then Delaney and Bonnie, I bring up George met Delaney Bramlett in 1968 and would later tour with the band Delaney and Bonnie shortly following the Beatles split. This group gave George the access to future friends such as Leon Russell and, in 1969, solo Beatles mainstay and sunglasses aficionado Jim Keltner. Well, Jim Keltner, wow. If you hear drums on something, he probably played it. <laughs> he's, a, he's amazing. He's a wizard. So without Delaney and Bonnie, you don't get Keltner, who you know obviously tours with George later. He's at um, Concert for Bangladesh. He's a Beatle mainstay, really. I mean, right up to the traveling freaking Wilburys. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. So those are the, you know, so the produced projects that I bring up here. There was also the Billy Preston album, which helped point the way toward things in All Things Must Pass, which we'll get to next time. But that's the overview. Yeah. And we'll spend a little more time on those Badfinger tracks when we get to the early 70s, too. Yeah, we damn well better. Yes. They're some of my favorite there's some of my favorite apples. Hey, I love me some Badfinger. Okay, <laughs> I do too. Yeah, for sure. I've seen Joey a couple times. Yeah, he's still he's still up there. It's uh, that's our overview of the Beatle music of George Harrison. We thank everybody for joining us. You know, we're I think I can speak for you, Chris, when I say we're very excited <laughs> to go through this catalog of so much beautiful music that really isn't talked about all that often. And so we thank everybody for joining us on it and for the continued support of the podcast. It has been in depth in its way, but we, as Beatleology goes, we intended it as a fairly light. <laughs> in other words, this this is a couple hours instead of 10 hours. So, you know, it's a fairly light overview of these tracks. But yeah, I'm glad we did this. It really did set the mood for me. And I did the same thing you did. I made a big playlist of every one of these tracks with alternate takes and things like that so I could really take it all in and found myself thinking, wow, you know, I'm surprised I never made this mixtape as a kid. I'm surprised I never just like, you know, just put yeah. all the George songs on on a tape and listen to it so I could really understand because I think listening to them all back to back, you really get a, a sense of the man's evolution and it's a remarkably rapid evolution, you know. That's the amazing thing about it. So quickly he becomes a very advanced songwriter. Don't Bother Me is literally the first song he ever wrote. Yeah, right. I'm surprised too that I never did this, actually, Chris. I thought the same thing. I was like, (laughs) why? Why did I never think to do this? I had mixtapes of Paul Granny songs, for example. (laughs) I'd go (laughs) find all the Granny tracks (laughs) and make a whole side. (laughs) Maxwell Silverhammer and Honey Pie, and you gave me the answer, you know? So, yeah. That was, I tell you, that was so funny watching Get Back last night, where George is like, well, I I have some songs, and then they smash cut to Mal Evans hammering on an anvil, and you're just like, no wonder this guy quit. <laughs> yeah, they did not have the anvil sound down yet either. <laughs> they had not found the right anvil, clearly. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you next time for, I guess, All Things Must Pass, huh? For All Things Must Pass. I can't wait. I'm super excited. Let's go out on some awesome George Harrison music. Music.
Bye. 